Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. So Amy has told me what wonderful dessert she makes, uh, and now I know just what kind of dessert she makes. I uh, never trust her again. Um, so welcome, friends. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, it's, it's great to have you here uh, today. We have made it in 2020 to Thanksgiving. Uh, I am intrigued to hear what the different Thanksgiving Day sort of thankfulness statements look like this year. It's a little different than most years. Um, and, and we're figuring out those problems. Like, can we have people over? Should we have people over? Should we travel? Should we not? Um, and, and I think that's okay. I think, you know, we're wrestling with which of our neighbors is most likely to report us uh, to the Housing Association. I got flagged for the first time by Highlands Ranch Housing Association. So I feel like a local now. I feel like I belong. Uh, they said that my fence is the wrong color. Um, and I've been told to go and purchase Highlands Ranch Brown and, and make sure that it's all taken care of. Uh, but, you know, there's that, that sense of like, oh, I'm not sure whether I should have people over or not, all those different things. And and I think the great news is sometimes we think that God is with us when we've made the right decision. And actually realizing that he's with us as we wrestle through those things is an important step, that, that God is there in the process of, of figuring out the right and wrong and all those different things. Um, and so to, to realize that, it's, I think is helpful. Uh, we've been talking for a few weeks uh, on this theme of directions. It's, it's something that I feel is helpful for any time we go through change, whether that's personal, and that change could be like the grief of a lost loved one, it could be a different job situation, it could be a family situation. Any change has some loss to it, and there's usually some grief in that. So it's a personal thing, uh, but it's also a corporate thing. Like when organizations change, when they go through something different, uh, when something happens, like th- there's a loss to that as well. Um, and, and there's some figuring out to do there. So we walk through these directions with the idea that we look uh, backwards and celebrate the great things that God has given, the great things in that relationship, the great things in that time of life. And then in the midst of that, we get to look upwards. In the midst of struggle, we get to look up and say, God, how are you present right now? Is it going to fix everything? No. Is it going to make everything okay? No. Will there still be some tension? Yes, probably. And will you feel ready to move on from that grief straight away? Probably not, especially in that personal grief. But eventually, the joy is there's this movement from upwards to forwards. It's the idea that God has a new story to bring the some other thing to come out of that. So we, we looked at this thing here, we looked at this idea of like Joshua and this community that we'll look at in a second. They cross this river, they take some stones, and they they put together this rustic altar as a celebration of we're going into a new thing. God, you have been with us, and we'll remember that. And and last week, Pastor Yvonne, she did just such a wonderful job talking us through the idea of inwards, and we'll get to that in just a second. Because after forwards, the, the series takes a little turn. I, I asked the question for the first three weeks, how can we experience God in change? But the last two weeks, the inwards and the outwards, it's much less individual and personal, and much more corporate and community. We start to ask this question, what kind of community is this? So last week we talked about inwards, who are we inwards? Now, I think every community, every organization has this 
organizing principle to it. There's something about an organization that will tell you exactly how the organization works or give you some idea at least. So Southwest Airlines, I have a, pilot, a friend who's a pilot for Southwest Airlines. He loves Southwest. He goes on and on about how, just how wonderful it is. Apparently, according to the CEO of Southwest, you can know how to run the company just as well as he does with just one piece of information. If you know that Southwest is the low-cost airline in the Southwest, that tells you everything that you need to know. It means that when a smart intern does some research and she says, right, I'm going to go away and ask customers what they want, and she finds out that the customer she talks to would like a light Caesar salad when they're going from San Francisco to Houston, uh, she goes to the CEO and says, this is what I've discovered. Our customers want a Caesar salad. And the CEO looks at her and says, well, hold on a second. Our customers chose us because we're the low-cost airline in the Southwest. Do they really want a light Caesar salad? What will that do to ticket prices? Will it lower them or will it increase them? And she says, well, no, it will increase them a little bit because we have to pay for the Caesar salad. And he said, then the customers don't want it. They only think that they want it. In actual fact, that, that whole thing is damaging to who we are as an organization. You can now go away and be the CEO of Southwest if that's what you'd like to do. I've given you a new job opportunity, at least, if nothing else. Uh, but there's, there's this idea, an organizing principle is foundational to what we, who we are as a, a group of people. So last week, Yvonne looked at this idea of inwards. Who is South, this community that we are part of, for itself? And we wrestled with this question, is it about the me? Or is it about the we? Is it what I want? Or is it what we as a whole group of people need? You might rephrase that a little bit. Like, we're supposed to be about me for my community. The Western church can be driven by this consumer tendency that says, well, it's about what I can get out. What are you going to do for me, South? What can you give to me? And yet, we would all say, I think, and, and we feel like the Jesus story would say, well, no, it's, it's not about that. It's about what can I bring? It's about how can I bring the gifts and the resources that God has given me to this community? If this is where I feel called to be, if this is where I'm made to belong, what can I do? What can I bring? And so that we walked through this process of like of surrender and walking back into grace and realizing that what makes us who we are isn't who we are, but whose we are. And that when we figured that out, realizing that we're here for the, the we and not the me, uh, it gives us this organizing principle to work with. And now we get to switch to outwards, which I would say for a, a Jesus community is this second organizing principle, this second thing. And so we're going to start by reading Joshua chapter 9. I'm going to warn you guys this. Uh, we switched to hour-long services to try and, you know, get 50 people in a room and, and fill, fill in, fit in with the restrictions. Um, you guys are the last one. So there's no other service to come afterwards. So all the stuff that I cut out in the first two services because I'm hopeless at crafting a 30-minute service, I'm just going to unleash it. So if we need to back in some Panera bread or something like that, we'll just we'll sit here, we'll do church together, and, and all the staff that have been here since like 7 o'clock. Like, <laughs> really? <laughs> so let's start with this. We're going to read Joshua chapter 9. We're going to take this passage today as, as almost like a springboard. We're going to go back and ask whether this, what we see this Joshua community doing here, is really what they were made to do and who they were made to be. Are they really living by their principles? So for some of you that love to really deep dive into a passage and go word by word, this sermon's going to look a little different to that. Uh, this is a fascinating narrative, 
but actually I think it's more helpful when we look at some of the other stuff going on around it. So here we go, Joshua chapter 9. Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, along the east, entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard that Joshua had, what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The Israelites said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us. How can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you? Where do you come from? They answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, of all he did in, in, in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take possessions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see, it is dry and moldy. These wineskins that, that we filled were new. But see how cracked they are? And our clothes and sandals are worn out from the very long journey. The Israelites sampled these provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out and on the third day came to the cities, Gibeon, Kerepheth, Bethshar, and Kirath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel. We cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters, water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leader's promise to them was kept. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, why did you deceive us by saying we, are, we live a long way from you while you actually live near us? You are now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded this servant Moses, his servant Moses, to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites and did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place where the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. Let's pray and we'll jump into this. Uh, Jesus, thank you that you're present with us. Thank you that as we open this book that you've given us, we believe you breathed on it by your spirit. It comes alive. God, make us to be alive in new ways. For those of us that are here and feel afflicted, may you, we be comforted. For those of us that are comfortable, may we be afflicted. Teach us your ways. Show us your paths that we can walk in them. Thank you that you're present here as we do that. 
Amen. So, we can talk about that. Miss that. There we go. So, one of the interesting things about this whole text and how it works is this group of people that approach Joshua and ask, essentially, keep us safe. We want to make a treaty with you. On some level, we want to become connected to you. And then the reaction of the people as God allows them to do that, or as they are allowed to do that, there's this shock and horror that these outsiders would become insiders. One of the things I've noticed about the church as a whole, sort of worldwide, is this. The two principles that we're talking about over these two weeks, inwards and outwards, we tend to latch very much onto the first one, the inward one. As we wrestle with some of this whole, is this me for my community or my community for me, as we wrestle with what it is to care for each other inward. The one tendency that we have is to become less and less focused on the outside. Now, if you happen to be listening and you would say, I'm an outsider to the Jesus story, I'm not even sure I buy into it, and you're kind of talking about me as though I'm not listening or not there, that is true to a certain degree. The truth is you are welcomed into this Jesus story. It is open to you. But this Jesus story, this church thing has always been about reaching outsiders. When I was chatting with elders at South about coming on board here as a pastor, one of the things they asked me is, do you have any non-negotiables? Or do you have any things that you're unwilling to surrender on? And the one thing I said was this, I do not and cannot stand to be part of a church that doesn't reach unchurched people. So if you don't want to do that, then I'm really not the person for you. Because to me, that is our whole point. Every good thing about my life has come from this Jesus story. And so to say that it's not about pulling more people into that story just didn't fit with who I am. Now, the truth is churches all over the world struggle with that tendency. We're supposed to be outward reaching and we become inward looking. But the funny thing is that's always been a problem. That's not a new thing. That's always been there. Because this Joshua community that we've been looking at, they were made to be outward focusing. There was a story back in their history that should have said to them, you're supposed to be for the world. It's not just about you. It's supposed to be about something bigger. Now, just like every organization might have organizing principles, uh, so every country uh, has stories or every nation has stories that kind of reflect who they are, kind of inform who they are. So if I were to say to you guys, the date, September 15th, 1775, that should ring some bells. There's this story about revolution and all those kind of different things and, and being born in a different country. My kids and I have some interesting debates about just the health of that resolution, revolution and, and whether an appropriate approach was to throw a wonderful thing like English tea into a, an ocean. Um, we disagree a little bit. There's a, there's a brokenness there. But that's a story that says something about who America is as a nation. June 19th, 1865, the day of the emancipation. It says something about who we want to be as a nation. We say that we don't want people to be treated differently because of the color of their skin. These are stories that hopefully they inform who we are. They say something about who we are. Now, just like us, this people had stories that reflected or informed who they were supposed to be. And maybe one of the central ones was this one. This is the story of a guy called Abraham or Abram. Check out what God says to Abraham. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. It's Abraham-centered, Abraham-centered. It's all about him. It's all about his family. And then there's this moment where the story takes a little twist, and this is the next line. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Suddenly, the story isn't just about Abraham and his family. Suddenly, the story is bigger and broader than Abraham and his family. Suddenly, the story is the whole world. Abraham's relationship with God, I would say, is on some level the same as fixing a crack on a windshield. So when I first moved to, or first visited America to visit Laura, I was just horrified to see that, that people tolerate cracks in their windshields in quite the way that they do. When I first met Laura, she was driving around in a, in a 1990 Honda Civic, and it had cracks the entire breadth of the windscreen. I was shocked that this was legal. Apparently in Michigan, everyone's just fine. It's okay. It's a thing that happens when you hit minus 20, minus 30. People just continue to drive. I don't know if Denver is the same way. But the crack doesn't start big, right? The crack starts small. And it slowly spreads out. And suddenly there might be that moment where the whole windscreen shatters. But it doesn't usually happen in a moment. Usually it happens over time. And, and what we see in the early part of the Bible, in the early Genesis stories, is the ways that humanity is cracking. And to start with, God does these big story things. He talks to the whole world. It's the stories that we're familiar with, maybe like the flood and the Tower of Babel. But then... In Genesis chapter 12, this passage we just read, everything switches, and, and suddenly it's one person. Suddenly it's Abraham, and Abraham, you will be the means by which I will reach the whole world. You'll be the means that will start to mend the cracks so that the whole thing doesn't splinter. Abraham starts off like every one of us, very selfish, very egocentric. It's all about me. My young little son Jude sat here during Aaron's time of worship in the second service and just repeated, repeatedly yelled about how delicious his snack was. Now he's cute so he can get away with it. He's young so he can get away with it. But, but repeatedly yelling, oh, it's so delicious, I'm so happy, is not something you can do as an adult in a worship service, just to give you a heads up. If anyone's thinking uh, that that may be in their future, he's egocentric and slowly he'll be learning to become broader than that who'll become what all of us become, which is ethnocentric. Abraham and his family are ethnocentric. It's about them. But God in this passage is beginning to say, well, it's going to be bigger than that. You're going to be geocentric. Abraham, your story isn't just going to be about you. It's going to be about the whole world. So the best way for me to help explain this is my beloved Michigan Wolverines. If you cut me, I bleed blue and yellow. I'm very contentedly pro-Michigan football. Uh, think for a second about how you might describe the experience of watching football and see how it informs this Abraham story. I'm going to cast you guys over here. You guys get to be Michigan fans. You guys are Michigan. You guys are the good guys. And you guys in the middle, I'm sorry to say, uh, you, guys, you guys are Ohio State. So I'm sorry, but that's who you are for now. And then you guys over here, you're the officials. Nobody likes you guys. You're just the, the, you're the enemies of everyone. Uh, and so think about what happens. Football is tribal. It's ethnocentric. You guys cheer for your team, you cheer for your team. There's go blue, there's go bucks. It's very much focused on, I want my team to win. And on some level, the other team are the bad guys. Now, we all know in this case, Ohio State are the bad guys, but generally it's very subjective. So you see this idea that like there's one side against the other, but think about what happens if during the course of this game, one fan on one side starts to choke on some popcorn. 
They're sitting away eating, and suddenly something gets lodged in their throat. Suddenly they can't breathe. What happens in that moment to this rivalry? Now, you might say, on one hand, like one less Buckeyes fan is a good thing. But in reality, human beings are wonderful about putting aside petty differences in this moment where some crisis appears. This thing doesn't matter. And because Michigan values academics as well, there's probably some doctors in this bunch. And so you jump out and you come across and you do the Heimlich maneuver and you save the person who's choking. That's what it is to have this bigger picture. That's what's happening with this Abraham story. He's starting to be moved from being tribal to being geo, starting to be moved from being ethnocentric to being about the entire world. This is where the story was always supposed to go. It wasn't Abraham and just his family. It was the world. The story was always supposed to be about the world. The struggle is that this group of people seem to find it easier to focus on very specific laws instead of on the bigger picture things like the thing we're just talking about. So this is a law from Leviticus chapter 11. Of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. Hoof, it is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. This group of people was brilliant at obeying these laws that were very, very specific and about them very, very individually. And these laws taught them that there is clean and that there is unclean. They struggled with those laws. They were great at those laws, but then they struggled with laws like this. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This thing, this big macro thing that said it's about bringing in the outsider, that was difficult. Worrying about laws like this three verses before, do not cut the hair on the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard, that they could do. But the big thing became harder and harder for them to focus on. And so you see that all of this is being wrestled with when we talk about this Joshua chapter 9 story. Are these guys outsiders that should be welcomed in? Are these guys enemies that should be killed or mistreated? There's all of these tensions that must play into this. When the people of Gibeon heard that what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. They put worn patches, patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. This is a group of people that are outsiders that are trying to find a way inside. When Joshua receives them, one of the fascinating things to me is his shock that they would try this ruse. That's his question. Why, why would you do this? I always wonder what their answer would be. Because you were going to kill us if we didn't do this. It's all about self-preservation. It's all about wanting to live. And Joshua almost taps into some sense of honor. No, you shouldn't have played this kind of trick on us. I wonder if this 
passage of scripture ever came up in any of the discussions on how to treat this group of people. I wonder if any of the tensions ever arose that, yes, we've got this command from God, this land is ours that we're going to march into, we're going to be given it. There's people that will lead us astray, we have to be careful about them. But yet also there's this command that if a foreigner comes to you and tries to live with you, you've been there. How do you treat that person? That person becomes an insider. They're not an outsider. They answered Joshua, sorry, we read this passage. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. I'm so fascinated by how this story ends up. The people are kind of pulled in. They're kind of part of the, the community, but they're also kind of not. They're given this weird place of honor. They're by the altar of God. They're involved in this whole process, which was sacred to this group of people. And yet they're seen as second-class citizens. It's like this half-hearted middle ground that Joshua and this people land in. They, they welcome the outsider in, but not really. It's like this fringe sort of thing. There was something about this idea that God gave Abraham about reaching the whole world that was, was revolutionary. You might say that it was disruptive. Nobody else was doing this. Everybody else was just focused on, this is about my tribe, this is about me. There's a great Arabic proverb that somewhat represent, represents that idea, the idea of it's me versus my brothers, me and my brothers versus my cousins, me and my cousins versus the world. There's that, that sort of like... That was the worldwide view of things. We were about us and our tribe. Everybody thought that way. For God to say it should be about the world, that was revolutionary. But don't you notice that sometimes something will happen in the world that's revolutionary, and then it sort of stops. I always think about Uber when I think about this. Uber's this company that suddenly created taxis everywhere. Up until this point, you either needed to be in a big city where taxis drove by regularly, and you could flag one down, or you needed a telephone number to call, and the taxi would come to you. And then Uber came along, and suddenly there's taxi drivers all over the place, and you can go on your phone and order a taxi or a service, and, and you're, you're set. But what happens with companies that do something revolutionary is after a while, instead of doing more revolutionary things, instead of being more outward-focused, they become very insular about doing their own thing and, and protecting what they have. And I think about that when I think about Abraham's community and how it was supposed to be outward-focused and it became inward-focused. And I think about that when I think about the church and I think about how it was made to be outward-focused and it becomes inward-focused. There's this temptation when things start to grow and get bigger to suddenly say, at some point, well, we're just going to protect what we have. And I wonder, as good as all the inward stuff is, if that's what happens when that's our focus, when it's about, about just self, about just us, about just the church, I wonder if we lose something magical, something that we were given that, that makes us different to everything else in the world around us. A few weeks ago, I uh, gave you this, theolo this philosophical problem, Theseus's boat. So if you weren't listening or weren't here that week, I I'm going to give you a quick catch-up. Theseus's boat is this philosophical sort of conundrum. If Theseus, the great hero of old, sails his boat around the world, and during the course of his adventure, he has to replace every single piece, is it the same boat as when he left? Now, a reasonable person will probably say, well, yes, it's the same boat. He just changed pieces in and out. But there's another counter problem to that. 
puts Theseus's boat in a museum. What happens if after his adventure, Theseus is short of money, so he sells his boat to make some cash. And he sells it to a museum who put it on display, and then during the course of the next year, a gang of thieves break in every night, and they steal one piece and replace it with a fake piece and rebuild the ship back in their hideout. Who has the real, real boat, the thieves or the museum? And it's kind of different ways of thinking about it. That's really just a jumping off point to give you my own Theseus's boat problem that I created for the problem of the church. I started thinking about the church, and, and I thought about this idea, Theseus's boat in a dry dock. Supposing Theseus builds his boat in a dry dock, and it never gets into the water. Is it a boat at all? Or is it just a house or a building or a structure that happens to look like something that might float? Is the moment a boat becomes a boat really the moment that it lands in the water and it actually floats and actually sails? And I wonder if the church, if it never actually does what it's made to do, is it really the church or is it just a good social organization, a good club that we get to belong to? If it never does the outward focus thing, which it was made to do, if it never becomes an organization that reaches people and allows them to come to know Jesus, if it never becomes a thing that changes the world around it and leaves it better than they found it, is it really a church? Or have we just missed something? We're made to be outward focused. There's the picture I grabbed to turn Theseus's boat into a dry dock. Very poor uh, technological work. Look at this early church. This early church was incredible in its way of bringing in outsiders and making them insiders. This is a conversation between God and a Roman centurion called Cornelius. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and his family were devout and God, were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. And in the course of the conversation, this is the reply he receives. Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named, named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. And Peter is, as he said, in a house by the sea. And this is the conversation Peter has with God as Cornelius is sending his, his friends to, to collect him. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. Peter's response is, no, God, I, I know the difference between insiders and outsiders. I know the difference between the unclean animals and the clean animals, and I don't break that rule. I'm very clear on that important rule. But then, as you see this story begin to sort of develop, Peter is pulled into this Jesus way of looking at things. Again, back in history, the outsiders were always supposed to be drawn inside. It was always an outward-facing community. And that's where Peter is allowed to land. That's where God leads Peter to land. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. 
While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. There's this moment where the two stories seem to connect in Peter's mind. He's sitting there wondering about what it means to see animals he thinks of as unclean being presented to him as clean, and suddenly three men turn up that he sees as unclean, and suddenly the connections fire. Suddenly he realized this story was never about food at all. And the truth is, it never was about food, even back in the Old Testament. It was always about something bigger. This is this moment where Peter ends, uh, he finally arrives at Cornelius' house, and this is the conversation that takes place. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to asso associate or visit with a Gentile, which wasn't really true. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came raising, without raising any objection, which also wasn't really true. He raised several objections, but kind of convinced himself he didn't. But this is the moment that he arrives. Like, this is the moment where he's like, ah, this church thing is about outsiders coming inside. This is about the outward focus. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. We're going to finish just by talking a little bit about John Roebling. I used to live in New York, not far from Niagara Falls. We would drive past it regularly. It's this incredible sight, one that my kids never got to see because they always preferred swimming in hotel swimming pools when we stayed overnight in Niagara instead of going to see this incredible sight. John Rubbling was the first person to cross the Niagara Falls with a bridge. He looked at this, uh, this place and said, a bridge is necessary. Up until this point, people were being ferried across by the famous Maid of the Mist. And he said, no, we can cross this. We can, we can make a bridge work. And not just any bridge. He would only accept, there's a picture of John Rubbling, a two-story bridge that had freight trains growing, going across the top and carriages and people walking in the, the, the story underneath. Nobody else thought this could be done, and he was convinced, no, it is definitely possible. And so he won the contract and began the process of figuring out how to do this, and what he discovered was this. The hardest part wasn't actually building the bridge. The hardest part was getting anything across the river in the first place. He just wanted to get a piece of string across this incredible span. He wanted something that he could build on. If he could get a string across, he could attach the string to a chain and get a chain across. If he could get a chain across, he could begin to put a structure in place. He could put steel across. And, but it started with this fact that nobody had ever been able to cross this huge expanse with anything other than a boat. And so he came up with this ingenious solution. He hired kids from the local town to fly kites up in the air with the goal of flying the kite across the river and landing it on the other side. If they could do that, then he had his string, which covered the span. If he had his string, he could put his chain across. If he put his chain across, he could build his bridge. But it started with a string. I think that this church thing that we are part of were made to build bridges across to people that don't know this Jesus person. We're made to build bridges to different parts of society that aren't connected to us. We're made to build bridges with different nations, different countries that aren't connected. But that's who we're made to be. 
This Abraham movement, this Moses movement, this Joshua movement became very interested in how to keep people out, how to build those gaps up, how to make them bigger, how to keep people separate. And I would suggest that we're made to cross them. We're made to cover those gaps. We're made to cross those incredible divides. But it starts with a string. It doesn't start with a bridge. It starts with the fact that you as an individual may be called to reach one person, to pray for one person, to love well one person. I love hearing stories in South about couples and, and people that are reaching people that are completely outside of this church world. Maybe you're called to find someone that only you can reach. Maybe you're called to join a ministry that's already doing that, to be part of something that, that's already existing. It's, the, the, it's not the string across the river, but maybe it's the chain across the river. You're called to volunteer in something that you're desperately needed in. Maybe you're called to give new strength to something that's been there for a long time. But the truth is you are made to do something. Because we as an organization were always supposed to be outward reaching. It was never just about us. Yes, my community, me for my community is true, but that only works if it's then my community for the world. We are bridge builders changing the world. That is what we are made to do. And we always were. So. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back as we close out this third joyful service. And uh, we're going to walk through the idea that there's, this, there's these, these spiritual practices that I've uh, given you each week. We talked in week one about lament, about the idea of looking backwards is recognizing our grief and realizing it's okay to not be okay. Week two is this practice of presence, realizing that God is here with us in this moment. Week three is petition, asking God, what is next? How might we move forward? Week four is confession. It's what it really means at its heart is saying the same as. We get to say the same about ourselves as God is saying. We get to say who we are. And then finally, I would give you this one. I would give you imagination. That's what it took to cross the Niagara River. It took this incredible imagination. That's what it takes to cross those divides in our world. It takes each of us having this imagination. The theologian Walter Brueggemann has this wonderful phrase, prophetic imagination. He says that the church is very good at one of two things for the most part. We're very good at doing the prophetic thing, saying to society and the world around, and know, uh, the world around us, know that behavior is not good. And then some parts of the church are very good at the imagination part. They're, they're good at doing the part where they say, this is how the world might look different. But very few churches do the two together. Very few churches stand and say, this is how, God, how man is made to live with God. And at the same time say, this is how the world could look if you could only imagine it. We're called to do both. So I'm going to pray for us as Aaron and the team close us through worship. Father, as we contemplate as we wait for you as we think about what forward looks for south and for us as individuals thank you for the inward focus that we have that we are a community that loves each other well we are here to participate not just to observe we care about this community we want what's best for it we're willing to put aside the me for the we but you didn't call us to stay insular you called us to go out, to build bridges, to change the world around us. 
God, for whatever you have for each of us here. Give us the imagination to see how you might work in the world. Help us to see the world differently than it is right now. To dream big dreams, to cross great divides. And in doing so, change the world around us. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.